Well, good morning again, everybody. Welcome. Happy Mother's Day to you mamas out there. Can I get a woo-woo? Yeah, it's good. It's real good, guys. It's like we could go to a Mariners game together, but we don't want to talk about the Mariners. It's been a hard week at the Huguenin house. Um, Many of you guys know that we were in Portland area last week bringing our sweet adult child home from school. She's here, guys. She's here. She's going to live with us forever, I'm pretty sure. I mean, that's what we want. It's not what she wants, but whatever. Um, But we were noticing we went to Bridgetown Church in the evening, and their meet and greet time to say hi to everybody is like seven minutes long. It's like really long, so I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make you keep talking, but it sure would have helped me in that moment that uh, we were rearranging things there. But I'm going to get on with why I'm here, and that's to give you some announcements. Um, Coming up on Saturday, May 21st, that's in two Saturdays from now, we're going to have, or Pastor Jason is going to be teaching a partnership class. And that is for people who are just kind of trying to figure out, hey, what is Brookview about? And we go over things like why we exist, how you can be involved, how we're structured, some of that kind of stuff as you kind of think, do I want to be a part of this family? And um, it just kind of lays it all out there for you. It's in a forum where you can ask questions that you might have as well. And we would love for you to come to that. Um, Again, that's from 9 o'clock till 1 p.m. Um, on that Saturday. And the way that you would sign up for that is by texting the word partner to the Brookview number, or you can fill out your online communication card. And we love it when you fill out your card and you respond to anything that we've got going on here. When you give us your prayer requests, we have teams of people that are praying for you throughout the week. And so if you go to brookviewchurch.com forward slash contact, or you just click on the contact, it'll come up and a screen will allow you to go to that digital connect card that we have. So um, take a minute and do that um, if you need to, but sign up for that partnership class. We'd love to have you. Really helps us to prepare for the class if you can RSVP early. That is so helpful to us. So anyone that's planned a party, love it when people RSVP, raise your hand nice and high. Yeah, you guys know. You're like, is anyone coming? No one's coming. And the party's on Saturday and Friday night. You're like, we have 80 people on Friday night. So don't do it, people. Don't do it. Okay. I'm mostly positive. (laughs) I'm spewing some very negative vibes, you guys. I'm very sorry. I can shift into Mother's Day. I will even soften my tone when I talk about Mother's Day. Um, Here at Brookview, when we gather on Mother's Day, it is to celebrate all women. We realize that the journey of motherhood is unattainable for some. For some, they are experiencing loss and grief today. And for some, it's just a great day. And we are all along the spectrum of that. And so today, we salute all women. And we say that God created you with something great to do in this world. And when you take your feminine heart, that power, that courage, that bravery, and you send that out into the world, it is a beautiful thing. And our world needs you. And so we celebrate you today. And the way that we do that is we give you nail polish and chocolate. So... <laughs> 
I mean, who doesn't love some good nails? Am I right? Um, so on your way out today, and even your kids, the girl kiddos, get to do that as well if you would like them to have nail polish. It is probably toxic. So <laughs> if I say it with a smile, then it's not harsh. It's probably toxic. Um, so happy Mother's Day, as is our tradition here at Brookview. Get your tissues out, ladies. I hear, I hear the, hmm. How do I hold this? I don't know. A mother held her new baby and very slowly rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she held him, she sang, I love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. The baby grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was two years old and he ran all around the house. He pulled all the books off of the shelves. He pulled all the food out of the refrigerator and he took his mother's watch and flushed it down the toilet. Sometimes his mother would say, this kid is driving me crazy. But at nighttime, when that two-year-old was quiet, she opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, looked up over the side of his bed, and if he was really asleep, she picked him up and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. While she rocked him, she sang, I love you forever, I like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. The little boy grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was nine years old and he never wanted to come in for dinner. He never wanted to take a bath. And when grandma visited, he always said bad words. Sometimes his mother wanted to sell him to the zoo. But at nighttime, when he was asleep, the mother quietly opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor and looked up over the side of the bed. If he was really asleep, she picked up that nine-year-old boy and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I love you forever, I like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. The boy grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was a teenager. He had strange friends, and he wore strange clothes, and he listened to strange music. Sometimes the mother felt like she was in a zoo. But at nighttime, when that teenager was asleep, the mother opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of the bed. If he was really asleep, she picked up that great big boy and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. While she rocked him, she sang, I love you forever, I like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. That teenager grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was a grown-up man. He left home and he got a house across town. 
But sometimes, on dark nights, the mother got into her car and drove across town. If all the lights in her son's house were out, she opened his bedroom window, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of his bed. If that great big man was really asleep, she picked him up and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I love you forever, I like you for always, as long as I'm living my baby, you'll be. Oh, little peach. <laughs> Typical. Well, that mother, she got older. She got older and older and older. One day she called up her son and said, you'd better come see me because I'm very old and sick. So her son came to see her. When he came in the door, she tried to sing the song. She sang, I love you forever. I like you for always. But she couldn't finish because she was too old and sick. The son went to his mother. He picked her up and rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he sang this song. I love you forever. I like you for always. As long as I'm living my mommy, you'll be. When the sun came home that night, he stood for a long time at the top of the stairs. Then he went into the room where his very new baby daughter was sleeping. He picked her up in his arms and very slowly rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while he rocked her, he sang, I love you forever, I like you for always, as long as I'm living my baby, you'll be. I'm going to pray for us. God, I thank you for the way that you have created the feminine heart to do something beautiful in the world. God, we partner with you in your creation to bring your kingdom come. God, I thank you for the gift of powerful women in my life, including my own mother. I thank you for the way that you heal and you redeem and you restore all sorts of things and um, in relationships as well. And God, if we are in this place today feeling heavy hearts, I pray that you would breathe life into us, that we would cling to you. And God, in the spaces where we're celebrating, God, may we praise you for the gifts that you have given us and the abundance that we're living in the midst of. So in the highs and the lows, God, you are the same and we can cling to you and we thank you that we get to do life in community and that we have powerful people, powerful women all around us. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Well, first of all, Jennifer Huguenin, yes. happy Mother's Day to you.
You're awesome. So as Jen alluded to, last Sunday we were out of town. We were, Jen and, and Brooke and I, our youngest, were in Newburgh, Oregon. Um, Kate capped a five-year extraordinary run at George Fox University with a bachelor's degree and then a master's in teaching. Yes. So there was a raging grad party for her. I did keg stands with root beer, you know, and her roommates. It was awesome. Um, and then we packed up all of her stuff and we moved her back home. And the plan for now is for her to get a teaching job in the fall and to be working on figuring that out this summer in either high school or middle school math. And if that doesn't work out, she's going to do PE and just let the rugrats run all day long. Um, but she's going to live at home with us for a while. And so I just want to say, Kate, welcome home. And um, not only back to the area, not only back to our home, but back to this church family. This place where you grew up. My gosh. I look at you, <laughs> and it's a mess. We're a mess. What is, what is wrong with our family? And by the way, she gets the crying like that, completely from her mother. <laughs> no, I just want to say welcome home to you. Welcome home and to, and, and to the church family as well. For these people that, that uh, you love and that love you, amen, welcome home. Yeah. I can never get up here and do anything that has even a tinge of emotion and then look at you because my guy is so contagious. And by the way, if there was any other guy in here that got at least a little bit teary-eyed with I Love You Forever, you're a sissy. <laughs> I also want to say, Kate, if you ever sneak into our bedroom and try to hold either one of us in the middle of the night, <laughs> that's going to creep me all the way out. Well, okay, so in the, in the last series that we were in, we, we were talking about hope and healing. You guys remember that? It was a while back. And central to that series was a vision from Ezekiel that was then referenced by Jesus, this beautiful picture of healing water in the form of a river just flowing out of the temple of God towards broken and hurting people that God loves. And so in Ezekiel's vision, Water's flowing out from the temple, and what's a, only a trickle at first slowly builds into a raging river flowing east out of the temple towards the brokenness of all people. And, and this river, uh, as it goes, it, it widens and deepens, and it brings life wherever it goes. It's, it's a vision. Ezekiel's vision is of new life because alongside of this river, there's fishermen because there's fish swimming everywhere in these clear waters. Just like there's people of every nation and tribe and tongue, people of every socioeconomic bracket, every background, every degree of having it together and not having it together that make up the family of God. And there are fruitful trees all along the bank of Ezekiel's vision. And their fruit leads to the healing of the nations, the healing of diseases. And eventually the river empties into the Dead Sea where this once lifeless body of water just explodes with kingdom life. Now this vision was originally given to oppressed captives from 
Israel, like enslaved Jewish people living under a Babylonian oppressor. So this was a vision that wasn't, that wasn't like separate from reality. It was written right into the suffering of this world. And as we saw within this vision, there are two simple invitations. The first is an invitation to come. Ezekiel is invited to get into the water, ankle deep and then knee deep and then waist deep and, until he's swimming in it. And in that water, he comes to life. Because there's mercy and justice and peace and healing and renewal and new life. So, so there's, into this vision, there's this invitation to come. But second, there's an invitation to become, right? To swim in the river until you actually become a part of it. The invitation is for you and me to then bring healing waters to others everywhere we go with our lives. So as time went on, and oppression just continued from one oppressor to another for the nation of Israel, Ezekiel's river became like this, this picture of hope. It was this stunning promise of what God was going to do one day. And by the time of Jesus, came more than 600 years after Ezekiel, this river vision was remembered by, by the nation of Israel annually at a seven-day feast. And we saw a famous uh, passage from John 7 at that feast to remember Ezekiel's river. And it kind of starts with this, John 7, 37. It says, on the last and greatest day of the festival. And we saw that the festival referred to here was the Feast of Tabernacles. A seven-day festival where the entire nation of Israel from all over the Roman Empire and beyond descended upon Jerusalem. And every day for a week, they would celebrate together. The priests would fill these giant cisterns with water. And every day at the same time, as the people gathered, they would sing psalms and, and, and pray. And the priests would pour water down the steps of the temple, which made a stream that was running east from the temple steps. And they were reenacting the Ezekiel vision as a kind of prayer, essentially crying out and saying, God, pour out your healing on our world. And this pouring of water happened each day of the festival, but on the seventh day, a priest would read Ezekiel's vision to the people, and that final day, the priest would then pour out seven times as much water. So there's now, there's now so much water pouring down the steps that it's like a, a small river is flowing. So we envisioned it together. The streets of Jerusalem just lined with worshipers, you know, hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands. And now they're singing psalms together. And the whole week has been building up to this moment. The whole nation has been crying out for the healing river of Ezekiel's vision to, to actually come. And in the middle of this holy scene, Jesus makes a proclamation. It says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, with water pouring down the steps, okay, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, interrupting the festivities, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. He's like, come, are, are you thirsty? Come to me and drink. I am the living water. Ezekiel was talking about me. Do you see it? What you were crying out for God to do is actually standing right here among you. I'm here. Come to me and drink. If you do, the living waters will flow from within you. And John later tells us, and by that he meant the Holy Spirit. 
So everything in the, the, in the river was, was in Ezekiel's vision. Jesus would then become in the world. Like he left paradise to come after us. Broken people disconnected from God. He, he called us to become, he called his disciples to become fishers of people. Just like the fishermen outlining the streams in Ezekiel's vision. And like the trees lined in the river, he fed the hungry and he healed the sick. And then hit through his death and resurrection, he created life in the most lifeless places. And through the Spirit, his apprentices later on then in the book of Acts, and we see it, it's beautiful, they became a part of the river. And they brought justice, and they brought peace, and they brought life to the hopeless. All that's a recap. You're like, I, I know that. We, we just talked about that for three weeks. All right. Well, if you're new, that was new for you. Here's the thing. For me, I have, since preaching on this, you guys are like, I get so much out of your sermons. <laughs> I hope so. Um, <laughs> I get more, and, and I just, this, this, it's like deeply imprinted in me. And, and I, I just have had this vision in my mind again and again and again for the last six, eight weeks because it is, you guys, it is beautiful. But the question that I've been wrestling with as I've been thinking about this so much is, okay, but what does, we know what it looked like in the book of Acts. What does this look like in our day? I mean, we are planted right in the middle of all kinds of brokenness. This, this last season has brought brokenness on so many levels. It's brought so many things, including division and, and isolation. I mean, how many of you have had a relationship damaged these past two years with someone that you really loved over politics or COVID or social justice issues or masking or vaccinations or anybody? I mean, it's been, it's been unbelievable. And in addition to all the other hurts, people are now left at they're angry, divided, lonely. There is brokenness all around us. So how can we as individuals and as a church family be part of the river that brings healing? Well, the reality is if we look to Jesus, there are many, many, many ways. And we could go so many different directions with that kind of a topic. But for the next few weeks, I want us to think about something really tangible and specific. And today I want to launch into it with some famous words of Jesus. So here's a little bit of context for what Jesus is, is about to say. It says, this is uh, Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Never a good idea. <laughs> Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice, he's not actually asking a question. This is a test. The whole, what's going on here is, does Jesus pass the test? Does Jesus, does this rabbi, this upstart rabbi know the scriptures? Does he hold the right theology? Does he have the right beliefs? He is not coming to Jesus with a heart posture of humility and openness. Jesus responds, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? So Jesus returns this man's question with a question, which is a classic pastor thing to do. It's awesome. Uh, so he's like, well, what do the scriptures say? How do you interpret them? So this Jewish religious expert says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
So he quotes from two Old Testament passages, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God, and, and, and on. It's called the Shema, and it became a daily prayer. In fact, Orthodox Jews still pray this prayer three times a day. Then he quotes from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. It kind of leaves it hanging out there. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Who's testing who here? <laughs> and then he says, now this is really good. Do this and you will live. All you have to do is love God with every square inch of your being and love your neighbor, the person to your right and to your left, as yourself, and then you will experience life to the fullest. You will experience all that God has for you. But the expert in the law wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, uh, who is my neighbor? Now, notice the motivation, again, behind the question. He's, he's looking not for an answer. He's not looking to be challenged. He's, not, he's looking for an out. He's, he's searching for a loophole to get off the hook. You know, it's, it's like, well, what if, I, what if I went out and loved somebody and they turned out not to be my neighbor? Wouldn't that be awful? <laughs> right? Like, who is my neighbor? And so what comes next is a response to that specific question. So in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. You gotta love Jesus. Ask him a simple question, who's my neighbor? And he just launches into a story. And this story we now call what? The Good Samaritan. And it is known worldwide. And many people that have like, never even set foot in a church are, have... the some awareness of this story. Okay, a little more context. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 18 miles long, and it was a steep drop, about 3,500 feet in elevation, and it had all kinds of twists and turns. So it was a perfect spot to hide out and mug someone, which happened a lot. It was famous for being a hazardous journey in the first century. So everybody that's listening to this, they can picture exactly what, what Jesus is talking about. So this guy's beaten and he's laying there. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, another religious professional, when he came to the place and saw him, he too passed on the other side. Now, it's easy for us, like two millennia later, to judge these two religious men, like typical religious men, right? I know you feel it. Religious men. And, but I just want to defend them a little bit. There's actually quite a bit going on for them. Um, a, a little bit of backstory. Both the priests and the Levites worked at the temple in Jerusalem, but most of them lived about 18 miles away in Jericho. And they worked on a two-week rotation. So when they came home with their pay for their two weeks of work, the pay was not in the form of a number in an online bank account or even in the form of cash. The currency came as, as an animal or as, as grain, and it was taken from the offerings that were made at the temple. Now, if you really want to, like, nerd out, uh, then just go read Leviticus chapters 21 through 23 later today. And there's all sorts of laws in there about food sanitation, uh, what we call the kosher diet now, right? So long story short, uh, if any of your food came into contact with somebody or something that was, quote, unclean, 
such as a man bleeding out on the side of the road, then all that food had to be thrown out. So imagine you're, you're a priest or you're a Levite and you just got done with a two-week long shift in Jerusalem and you're dead tired and you're traveling home to Jericho on this really dangerous road and you just want to get home and get through it as fast as you possibly can and there's yet another victim on the side of the road and he's probably as good as dead anyway. So if you stop to help, the odds are that your food for your family will become unclean. Not just like your money to go have fun on the weekend, but like your food for your kids and your spouse and, and those that are depending on you. Now, I just want to say we, we all love the idea of mercy and justice and peace. We love it. Great idea. Living it is different. I had a friend email me this week in response to last week's message that we played at Brookview. And um, he said, I see and love and embrace Jesus' description of the kingdom most of the time. Until it comes to living it out and giving up time, money, control, status, advantage. Then it gets real and bites and my selfishness rebels. We all love the idea of mercy and justice and peace until it costs us something. So I just want to say, let's be gracious towards religious professionals, and especially the two guys in this story. Um, Jesus goes on. But a Samaritan from a different ethnic group entirely, not even a Jew, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, both of which were very expensive. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out uh, two denarii, a good chunk of money, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, because this story is like familiar to many of us, it kind of, it puts us at a disadvantage because we can sort of think of this, we listen to it and we're like, oh, sweet, here comes Mr. Nice Guy Samaritan to practice random acts of kindness. That's so nice, Jesus. But if you were a first century Jew and you're hearing this story you're not thinking of random acts of kindness and you're not, this is not all flowers, rainbows, and unicorns. Okay, if you're a first century Jew, you are actually anticipating a very different character showing up on the scene next. Here's why. There were three levels of people serving at the temple. Okay, you had the priests at the top, then you had the Levites on the next tier, and then below that you had Jewish lay people. The priests were the most educated, they made the most money, and then the Levites, and then the Jewish layperson was usually a peasant. So if you hear a story about a priest coming along, and then you hear a story about a Levite coming along, who are you expecting to come along next? The Jewish layperson, right? And that makes sense. You're like, okay, here it comes. Because Jesus is ever the champion of the poor, he's ever the champion of the little guy, and so you think, ah, oh, that's just classic Jesus. You know, don't make the priest the hero. Don't even make the Levite the hero. No, make the Jewish layperson, the average Joe, make him the hero of the story. I see where you're going, Jesus. This is really good. That's who you're expecting. And then, bam, a Samaritan in your face. 
So, so Jesus doesn't follow the expected hierarchy, but it's, it's not just some other kind of, this is, this is like explosive. There were racial tensions that went way, way, way back between Jews and Samaritans. And here's, here's a short version of why. More than 600 years before Jesus, 10 of the 12 tribes, like Israel had how many tribes? 12. Okay, so 10 of the 12 tribes were in the north, and they were taken into exile by the Assyrians. Okay, but the Assyrians left behind a few of the Jewish people in the region, and then the Assyrians sent other people to intermarry with them and create sort of a whole new group of people. And the Jewish survivors did exactly that. They intermarried with their oppressors, and their descendants were known as the Samaritans. Okay, they were half Jew and half Assyrian, the wicked, ungodly, enemy, oppressor Assyrians. Sometime later, the two tribes in the south went through something very similar. They were defeated by Babylon, and they were exiled to Babylon, but a few Jews were left behind, and yet the survivors of the Babylonian invasion refused to intermarry. They just said no, and they just like drew a line in the sand. So how do you imagine the Jews in the south felt about the Samaritans in the north? Jews saw Samaritans as sellouts, as like half-breeds, as heretics, and Samaritans saw Jewish people as cruel, heartless racists. So these two ethnic groups hated each other. And who does Jesus make the hero in a story for a Jewish audience? A Samaritan, the enemy, the other. And Jesus now turns his attention back to the teacher of the law, and he says, well, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, and I imagine he says it through gritted teeth, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, there are two things Jesus does here that I think are helpful to notice. The first is, is pretty obvious to most of us, and it's that Jesus universalizes neighbor. For Jesus, your neighbor isn't just the person in the house next door. It isn't just the person who is like you. It's anyone. It's everyone. So the net is so wide that it goes all the way to your enemy, to the person that you can't even name because of all the emotion, to the person who, when his or her name comes up in conversation, you're immediately racked by anger or anxiety or whatever. So do, Jesus doesn't leave us and opt out. There's no loophole. There's no clause to get, to get us out of loving anybody. Everyone is our neighbor. Everyone is the object of the Father's love. And Jesus wants us to see that we are the conduit for the Father's love. And that doesn't mean that we go around having fuzzy emotions about everybody. It means that we are committed to working and willing the good of other people. That's what love is. It means we are committed to willing their good and working toward it as, as we would our own. So Jesus calls us to love our neighbor. And now most of us, like that's not, we get that. We're familiar enough with Jesus that we know this. But in universalizing neighbor, there's a, there's a real danger. If you make your neighbor into everybody, it quickly becomes nobody, right? 
Because in our culture, we can hear this and, and we can just sort of hear it like, okay, be nice and tolerant and tip well. And, and, and just practice general politeness and ni- niceness. And, you know, when people cut you off on the freeway, wave. Jesus is talking about a love that runs a whole lot deeper than that. And so it's important for us to see that Jesus also particularizes neighbor. You and I don't have the resources to meet all needs. But the thing is, it's important for us to meet the needs that we can. To identify actual people in our actual sphere and be willing to pour into these people deeply. The Samaritan couldn't resolve all poverty. He couldn't heal all the mugged people that that walked along that road or all the people that were robbed. He found one very real person in his one very real life on one very real road. And he dove deeply into relationship with that one person for a season and he cared for him in unbelievable ways. His his love of, of neighbor extended to an actual person. See, what, what can happen is we can be followers of Jesus and we're at home and because some of us are wired emotionally, we like see a Hallmark commercial and it's really sweet and we get choked up and we go, man, I'm a loving person. <laughs> but we haven't exercised any actual love. And it's interesting what, what Luke does next in the telling of the story of Jesus. The very next scene is another act of love. The very next line. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, traveling their road, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. And the story goes on. And many of you know that story. Um, If you don't know it, we're going to dive into it next week. But all I want you to see today is Luke's literary link. Jesus tells a story about a traveler on a road who's in need. And he experiences a tangible act of love from another, a person who steps in to host this man in need. He acts like a host to the man in need. Now, the word hospitality is not used in the story, but that's exactly what it is. Then Jesus travels on his own road, and he is in need, and Jesus experiences a tangible act of love, hospitality from Mary and Martha, who embody what Jesus just said which is awesome because after making a Samaritan the hero, let's make two women the heroes next, right? Jesus is upsetting as many nasty people as possible. You gotta love Jesus. So if you see what Luke is doing in these two stories, he's tying together three simple, tangible ways to love and heal. One, love your neighbor as yourself. Two, Start with the person right in front of you. Three, be wildly hospitable when possible. The Samaritan provided for the needs of a man that was, that was hurting and broken. Mary and Martha, quote, opened their home to Jesus and his crew, and, and that happened along with Jesus. There were a lot of, of meals in community, and hospitality can take a lot of forms, but lately, here, here's what I've been wondering about. Some of you know I've been wondering about this because I've talked about it before, and it made you uncomfortable, and now I'm going to talk about it again, and you're like, oh, it's happening. Here, here's what I've been wondering. What if, as followers of Jesus and his way, we began to see our homes differently? What if we were to recapture our home or our condo or our apartment 
or because of COVID safety, our backyard and a picnic table or whatever. But what if we were to recapture our home as like a tangible outpost for the kingdom of God? What what if our home became one of the primary settings where for us, love is being lived not just to those who live with us, but to those who are outside our home? What if our home became an outpost for relationship and for community? What if our table became a tangible expression of love being lived? Now, I say recapture our homes as an outpost for the kingdom of God because I sense that these days the typical follower of Jesus doesn't think about their, their home all that differently from the tip, how the typical non-Christian thinks about their home. I mean, it's a place to retreat. It's a place to hide away. It's the place that I go where I need, a, I need me time. A lot of Christ followers I know are super passionate about love being lived, like legitimately about serving those in the church family and those outside the family, those who don't know Jesus yet. They're deeply passionate about serving those that are in need. Many Christ followers I know say an absolute heartfelt yes to all of that stuff. It's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling. And they pray for opportunities and are wide open to being used by God and yet think of all of that as something that has to happen outside their home. I mean, as the saying goes, A man's home is his castle. I mean, come on. That's beautiful. Who doesn't want a castle? Am I right? Here's the thing about castles, though. Castles have giant walls and a moat and a portcullis, all designed to kill you if they don't want you in the castle. So what if we were to see our homes not as castles to retreat from the world, but as outposts for the kingdom of God in the world? What if we were to reimagine and re-envision our dining tables or our backyards or our barbecues or our triggers or our picnic tables or just as opportunities because we've been gifted them by God to love others in very real ways? Now, I want to say... Maybe you're here, and you are an introvert. And you're starting to twitch right now. (laughs) And you are immediately thinking, but what if I'm not wired for that, pastor? What if I'm an introvert? What what if I don't have the spiritual gift of hospitality? You know, there's different spiritual gifts. I I got other ones. What if I don't have the spiritual gift of hospitality? What if my gift is, is, is like being secluded and in silent meditation on Scripture all day long by myself every day for the rest of my life? Okay, I just want to say, um, if, you're, if you're kind of in that camp, even if you're an introvert, even if you don't have this amazing gift of gathering people in community and being the life of the party, you're not excused from loving people. And and if God has gifted you with a home, maybe that gift is to share. But here's what I want to say. Maybe don't envision a, like, you know, I'm going to put my, I'm going to try this and put my toe in the water and you envision like a raging block party at your house and, and there's a DJ and snow cone machine and clowns. Clowns. 
It's my fantasy, I can do what I want with it. <laughs> okay, maybe don't envision something like that, okay? So maybe envision a cup of tea on the couch with a coworker or a neighbor or an old friend. Or lunch with somebody that you haven't seen for a while or chips and salsa in the backyard sitting in camp chairs. This does not require you getting a whole new personality. It requires offering relationship to somebody in a very real way. And I bet you know somebody who could be blessed by that because all of us travel roads where people are hurting. We do. They may not be mugged and bleeding out on the side of the road, but we all travel roads where people are hurting. You have people in your life that need you. Like God has put them in their, your, your life and they need you. Like if, he, if we could like see our neighborhoods and our workplaces from God's perspective, if we could see them from like God's bird's eye viewpoint with like x-ray vision right into people's homes and stuff, if we could see into that, each home, each apartment, I guarantee we would see tons and tons of people that are hiding away, people that are lonely and hurting and desperate for the love of the Father and for some form of family. Because of the widespread breakdown of family in our culture and because of the way we have become so career-driven, so many people go to work and they kill it in their jobs and then they come home to no community and no meaning. Now, as I said earlier, you cannot go deep with everyone. You, you can't be wildly hospitable to the entire greater Seattle area. Okay, so you have to get specific. You have to pick someone or, or at least like a small group of someones. So here's, I just want you to think this morning, like who in your world could you offer hospitality? Maybe invite them over. Maybe feed them. Maybe go for a walk and just talk about life and listen. Or if your home really doesn't work, and for many of you, for some of you anyway, that may be the case, then maybe take them to lunch or take them to dinner or invite them to a Mariners game or a Sounders game. I'd, I'd recommend the Sounders these days. <laughs> or maybe a concert or, or some, you, you find something that you have in common with them and go do that thing. And, and if you have the resources and it's not really awkward and weird, pay for it. Find a way to be as hospitable as as you can. Now, if you have a home or a condo or apartment, then my question is, could you use that, could you begin to use that in some way as a missional center to offer relationship and community? And if you don't have that, then what do you have? What, what gifts has God given you that you could use for ministry? A, a flexible schedule, a, you know, extra time, extra money? Who needs you and what do you have that you could bring to this? Because if we're ever going to become part of Ezekiel's river, bringing actual healing to our actual world, then we have to think about the resources God has given us, and we have to identify specific people in need, and then go live love. If one of the gifts that God has given us is a home, what if, what if we begin using that in greater ways for deeper ministry? Like as I'm, as I'm reading and listening to prophetic Christian voices in our culture, and there are many, I mean, it's, all sorts of followers of Jesus are really recapturing this idea. There's like a movement in, in you know, the U.S. right now among kind of underground movement. John Tyson, a pastor on the East Coast, 
He writes this, What if our homes stopped being the places we hid from the world, but havens to which the world comes for healing? Francis Schaeffer was one of the 20th century's premier Christian intellectuals, a theologian and philosopher, and, and he wanted to create these like unique spaces where people could come from all over the world to ask questions and have discussions about the way of Jesus, but even more, to actually experience the community of Jesus. So along with his wife, Edith, he founded uh, Labrie in Switzerland, and it's a French word that means shelter and his Labrie homes have now, people have caught the vision and they, they've spread all over the world. It's become this, this huge movement. But as, as grand as his vision was, one time he was coaching someone in how to start and, and he said this. He said, don't start with a big program. Don't suddenly think you can add to your church budget and begin. Start personally and start in your home. I dare you. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ. I love that. Do what I'm going to suggest. Begin by opening your home for community. There is no place in God's world where there are no people who will come and share a home as long as it is a real home. I love that, you guys. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ. I need to start working that into sermons more. <laughs> Like anytime I really want to get you to pitch, I'm like, I dare you in the name of Jesus. Yes, that's so good. Now, so this is the first message in this series that we're calling Eating and Drinking and thinking about what community around tables and, and just kind of casual community, but beautiful community can look like. And all I'm trying to do today is to get, to get us dreaming a little bit, like what might be possible for you, for us, and how might we become a part of a healing river? Our world is divided. It's lonely. There's brokenness everywhere. Where would we start? Well, this is a tangible thing. That, that this, is, this is how it could look. And what I want to do is I just want to point out a little bit how this looked long ago because this was foundational when, when Christianity became a thing. As many of you know, once Jesus was gone for the next 300 years, Christians were a persecuted minority who took over the Roman Empire. They didn't use force or coercion or ad campaigns or any of that. They, they, they just loved people from the bottom up, lived differently, lived beautifully, and they were constantly inviting others to come and experience what they were experiencing. But at the heart of that movement was a radical commitment to hospitality. These communities of people learning and practicing the way of Jesus. Like they took hospitality to depths that the world had never seen. The etymology of our English words for hospital, hospice, hotel, hostel, and others, they all come from the exact same root word, hospitality. And they all flow out of the vision of ancient followers of Jesus. Did you know that? In the ancient world, there were no hospitals, as far as we know. And there were most definitely no hotels, much less Airbnbs and VRBOs with cool apps on your phone. Now, there were inns, and we just read about one in the story, but they were rare, and they were known to be dangerous. And so the early followers of Jesus began to see opportunities, like kingdom opportunities. It was a unique cultural moment where Rome had initiated two innovations that changed the course of Western civilization and human history. One was its, its legal system, which still influences the way we do legal systems today. 
The other innovation was an extravagant and comprehensive road system. The, the Romans funded and built roads all over the Mediterranean. And so while travel was suddenly possible on a whole new level, the problem was there were no good places for travelers to stay. So very soon, followers of Jesus picked up on this emerging cultural moment, this acute need in society, and stepped in to fill that void. And it became customary for followers of Jesus to always have a spare room. And they would house travelers, and they would feed them, and they would love them. And word got out. Like you would come to a new city, and you'd just ask, hey, where are the followers of Jesus to stay with? And they became famous all over the empire for their hospitality. In fact, Roman Emperor Julian, okay, a pagan who worshipped the Roman gods, became annoyed at the spread of Christianity throughout the empire. And he charged the pagan priests to copy the Christian practice. He instructed them to practice hospitality like the Christians in an effort to convert the empire back to paganism. And as many of you know, and as history tells us, it didn't work. And, and as this practice grew and grew for followers of Jesus over time, in 370, uh, 370 Basil, the bishop of uh, Caesarea, so right on the coast of Israel, founded, as far as we can tell, the very first hospital in human history. It was in a response to a severe famine, and it was, more, it was for more than just the sick. It was for the poor and for the traveler. It was kind of an all-in-one haven for people. And, and those ideas just expanded among followers of Jesus right on into the broader society until they eventually became normalized everywhere, right? We, we cannot imagine a world with no hotels, no hospitals, no hostels. We can't imagine a world where there's like no hospice care. You guys, there once was such a world. And into that world, radical hospitality came in Jesus, and then it came to the rest of the world through those who followed Jesus. Our cultural moment is far from identical to that of the early church, right? I'm just saying, what if consistent radical hospitality could also in some ways reach our generation? I've been a pastor for 19 years. And um, this is not going to shock you guys. I love church. I love church. I love church services. I love the preaching of the word. I, I, I love worshiping with other people and the music and just, I love small groups. I love ID groups. I love going to Haiti with teams on mission trips. I, I love our community partnerships with Vision House and Nourishing Network and Cedar Way Elementary. I love all of the structured ways that we move together as a river for healing. Okay, but here's what I'll tell you. Over the last 19 years, some of the richest times of ministry have just been in my home. They've been with lots of Brookview people but also with a lot of people that don't go to Brookview. People that aren't sure what they think about Jesus or Christianity. Conversations over dinner, over wine, over a glass of beer, over s'mores around a fire in the backyard, over dinner at an outdoor table in the middle of COVID. Jen and I have had amazing moments with people. Poor people, rich people, young people, old people. Some of you know who you are. Married people, divorced people, 
single people, gay and lesbian people, black people, Asian people, Hispanic people, Russian people, Ukrainian people, and tons of other nationalities. And we've been so blessed to host so many different kinds of people. And I, I mean that. I mean, we have been blessed. We've had so many moments. And that's the thing about this, you guys. I freaking love it. It's so cool. It's not a burden. It is 100% a blessing to be able to do this. It is a privilege to be able to have the means, to have the means in a home and to be blessed by God, to be able to offer hospitality to people. And God has moved in our home again and again and again. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times that the Holy Spirit has broken out in some way in a conversation that just organically kind of goes by itself to a beautiful place. And that, like it's, my, our home is one of my favorite venues for organic ministry. And so what I want to do, today's just, we're just kicking this thing off. There's a, I know there's a lot of yeah buts and how wills and all of that. We're going to walk through some of this. I just want to encourage you guys to dream a little bit today. Is there anybody in your world that you are passing by from day to day that's in need? Maybe in need of friendship, of community, of an ear, of somebody to process life with, somebody to understand, of some place to feel wanted, accepted, to feel a little bit like family. I just want to point out that the way of Jesus swept through the Roman Empire once. And central to that way was radically ordinary hospitality. If we use the gifts God has given us, like the early church, what might happen? If we, if we saw our homes as outposts for the kingdom, what might happen? How might God bring healing to our world through our church family? And many of you do this. I know you do. And I know that and I love it. But I think that we have room to grow. So what if we as a church recaptured that vision? I, I don't know about you, but I, I envision a river, right? The kingdom of God that's just growing deeper and wider, a river of, of healing and life. As John Tyson said, what if our home stopped being the places we hid from the world, but havens to which the world comes for healing? Wouldn't that be something? Father in heaven, I thank you for the reality that this river is for us to come and, and participate in and be healed, but I also thank you that it is, it's something that we can become a part of and, and, and take to the world. And I pray that you would help us to find specific, tangible ways to actually do that in the lives of actual people in our actual lives. And if, if using hospitality is something that, that we can do more of or we can do more efficiently or we can do deep, more deeply or, or, or better, God, I pray that you would show us what that looks like, not as a burden, as an ought to, as a have to, as a religious thing, but it just is something that we love to do. It's as an extension of who we are because we have people in our lives that we do love and we, and we want to show them your love. So God, would you, would you give us a vision? Would you equip us? And would you use us deeply? Amen.